Magandang araw, podmates. Howie Severino muli na nagpapaalala na nakakatalino ang mahabang attention span. Ang kasama ko ngayon ay isa na namang dakilang Pilipino. Pero isa siya sa pinakabata kong naging guest all of 23 years old. Pero ang dami na niyang nagawa. Hilary Diane Andales, who just graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology last year with all kinds of honors, majoring in physics. MIT, of course, is one of the leading science institutions in the world. Una ko siyang nakilala bilang isang uh, uh, high school student uh, na sitting po noon ay uh, isa na siyang uh, prodigy. You know? uh, dahil nanalo na siya ng uh, uh, prestigyosong uh, award, yung tinatawag na Oscars ng Science, the Breakthrough Challenge. Uh, para sa kanyang uh, napaka-creative at informative na science videos. Uh, so she is also a science communicator, so you will find her beautiful content on various platforms. So uh, without further ado, magandang araw sa'yo dyan sa Boston, Massachusetts. Hillary? Magandang araw po. And of course, thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned, no, Hillary, uh, and I hope you remember, I, I first met you after you won that award and I read about it and then uh, kinumbida kita sa Bumisita uh, sa GMA Network, just to put uh, ourselves on your radar because we knew that you had such a promising future because uh, the Breakthrough Challenge is a major global uh, award in science and and you you were the, the I think, the grand prize winner doon sa youth mm-hmm. uh, category, you know, and that helped you get into uh, Massachusetts uh, Institute of uh, Technology. You know? so, so you've had a, a most unusual... Um, a uh, very impressive journey as a Filipino student uh, but uh, but on top of 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 that no um, you 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 come from a provincial town no uh, abuyo mm-hmm. late it's not a big city usually yung mga uh, mga makikilala mong uh, uh, sumisikat no sa abroad uh, yung mga yung mga mga estudyante sa sa manila na may, may mga advantages of being in the capital diba going to these big yeah. uh, elite schools etc but you know you you grew up in the province you grew up uh, mm-hmm. not even in not even in tacloban you grew up in a in a, a much smaller place in in leyte which mm-hmm. you know which makes you even more unusual no so ang una kong tanong uh, hillary you know how does that feel no to come from abuyo leyte and yes, then well. make it to two of the leading universities in the world and and basically you're, you know the, the world has become your oyster mhm yeah well first of all thank you for the very kind words and for me my the fact that my hometown is Abuyog is a point of pride for me because, as you said, not many, you know, people typically think of these provinces as not homes for, you know, amazing talent, especially in the sciences. And I felt this very early on in my in my childhood. So back then, I went to a very small school, Gabaldon Central School. But but even then, it was still the biggest uh, public school in the town. And kahit na, kahit na under-researched yung school namin, my mentors were very dedicated. But throughout all that, I think my um, the m- most impactful influences really in shaping me from, you know, coming to Obuyog to, you know, MIT, the, lead- the leading university in the world is my parents talaga. So back then we were we lived in this very small neighborhood in Abuyog, one of the poorest neighborhoods in Abuyog, in fact. And yun, actually, I can't say that for sure that it's one of the poorest neighborhoods. But the the vision that my parents had, you know, they had such grand visions of the world. Na kahit andun kami sa Abuyog, 
they kept inspiring me with stories of the great scientists of the world. So when I was younger, instead of telling me stories about fairy tales, they would tell me stories about Albert Einstein and how his, you know, idea changed the world, Marie Curie and how she broke down barriers and was such a genius during her time, also Charles Darwin. And these stories really motivated me to look beyond boundaries that such that boundaries didn't even exist for me anymore. And that kind of seed planted in me, at, you know, as a five-year-old, six-year-old, really just made me the person that I am today. And I'm very thankful for my parents for that. And this is, I'm, and now that I think about it, now that I've met a lot more Filipino students, I don't think I'm that unusual at all, actually. So I'm part of this mentoring network called Cause Philippines. We're a nonprofit that mentors uh, underprivileged Filipino high school students, and we help them get into schools abroad, get scholarships abroad. And I meet so many of these amazing young students coming from very humble backgrounds, getting, you know, scholarships into places like Harvard or Princeton. And this is just inspiring to me that there are so many talented students all over the Philippines and not just in the capital. Well, okay, I want to I wanna, uh, get back to the uh, subject of your parents. But I, I'm interested uh, as a parent myself, no, and a lot of parents might be listening, no. So, w- what did your parents actually do aside from telling you stories about scientists? I mean, were they tiger parents? Na, because some <laughs> kids become successful because talagang uh, you know they're being driven by by equally driven parents. Tinatakot ka ba? pressure ka? Or they were just was it um, was it a lot of uh, carrots lang, or was there carrot stick? I mean, what 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 kind of parenting produces a kid like you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my par- I wouldn't classify my parents definitely as tiger parents, but my parents had expectations and my parents had, you know, goals and visions for what they believed a successful career would look like. Um, and so my parents, they both graduated from the University of San Carlos. That's where they met. And my dad finished chemistry and my mom studied accountancy. And but even Excuse then, they that, sorry, that, University of San Carlos is in Cebu. Yes, in Cebu. Okay, just want yeah, just wanted yes. to clarify that. And they had this mutual interest in science, and you know, just in reading in general. And in the course of their you know twenties in their formative years, they started forming this vision of you know what what kind of achievements out there in the world existed. And because their vision was not limited to where they were, they had this kind of bigger context in which to place themselves. So yung, yung parents go at the since I was very young, they already knew kind of um they were always on the lookout for things to do for me, you know, to try to get me to be interested in many things. <laughs> so my mom, one time she saw this Jollibee commercial with Carmela Lau in it. And Carmela Lau was our very first um, silver medalist of the International Mathematical Olympiad. And more, even more, she was a young woman. And that inspired my mom so much. And she was like, oh, Hillary, you should look at this commercial. Be inspired. <laughs> that was, um, that's why, uh, you know, they started getting me into math. And I did math. As a result of that, I did math competitions from grade one up until grade 12. And my dad also, he was very aware of but, these. But how did you feel about that? I mean, how did you feel now? Your your mom kind of, I mean, your mom kind of pushed you into yeah. doing the math. That was okay with you. 
I mean, you enjoyed it. You didn't. You never felt I like. Did. Uh, well, I'd rather be playing outside rather than be preparing for these mm-hmm. uh, math competitions. Yeah. I mean, grade one math competitions yeah. at grade one. I mean, in grade one, I just wanted to be in the playground, you know, yeah. and uh, be with my friends. Uh, yeah, uh, I. I was okay the, with you. I in the beginning when I was very young, I was very okay with it because I enjoyed math and math gave me a lot of confidence in myself. And to me, it was like play. Because I was very good at it, it felt like, you know, fun. (laughs) And But later on, when I was, you know, a tween, teenager, I I found new hobbies that were not, you know, that were not given to me by my parents. I I started, there was a bit of a clash, like my dad would. I had a competition coming up, parang science quiz (laughs) beat, tapos hindi ako nag-aaral. Because I wanted to play this game. Um, so there was kind of a clash where my dad would have to put me, you know, you know, make me remind me of discipline so that I could win the competition. But it wasn't really just I also had my own desires of winning the competition. So it wasn't exclusively from my parents. And so but as I grew up, I discovered more of my own interests and um, they were very open um, to that. I just want to quote from uh, an an intro on one of your platforms. You introduce yourself as uh, someone who studies how ultra faint dwarf galaxies form. So I'm mm-hmm. quoting from your intro. No, they are the oldest galaxies in the cosmos. Uh, you call them cosmic fossils, which give us clues about what the early universe uh, looked like, no? So uh, mm-hmm. at this point, siguro ibang listeners natin nag-nosebleed na about you know, cosmic <laughs> fossils. I mean, fossils, dinosaur fossils are already kind of esoteric, no? Pero cosmic fossils. Uh, but anyway, ang tanong ko lang, of all the things to study, why cosmic fossils or, you know, the oldest galaxies in the cosmos? Uh, just in a mm-hmm. nutshell, uh, Hillary. Yes. So actually, I found myself in this field of studying ultrafine dwarfs by chance. So, <laughs> no, no COVID summer, I couldn't find any research opportunities. And my friend was like, oh, does anyone else want to take this research opportunity? Because I accidentally signed up for another one. So I just grabbed that one. And I found out that the research group was studying these very old stars and very old galaxies. And I found it very interesting. And because I felt very well supported in the group, um, they were very good mentors and they really you know, teach me everything from the basics up until what I know now. So I stayed in the group. So this is actually a, the story of many different scientists. Now they find themselves in a particular field by chance. We don't. A lot of us don't premeditate about the specific subfield that we're in. Mm-hmm. But so on why I chose on why I think ultrafaint dwarfs are fascinating is um, is a also a different story. Well. As we, as you know, you mentioned dinosaur fossils, right? So archaeologists use these fossils. They dig up these fossils from the ground so that we can learn about what the early Earth was like, what the climate was like, what the animals look like, and we kind of do the same thing. So in we call ourselves actually galactic and stellar archaeologists because we find these very old stars and very old galaxies and we look at their properties. So, you know, how bright they are, what kind of elements are in there. So, you know, do they have maybe do they have gold in them? Do they have iron in them? Do they have this element called europium in them? And 
um, looking at those elements, looking at what they're made of, how bright they are, how far they are from our own galaxy, um, we can learn about the early universe. Because these oldest galaxies, they were born in the old, old times of the universe, the first billion years. Our universe right now, we believe it to be around 13.8 billion years old, which is a long time. So that's the time from the Big Bang where everything started and from until now. <laughs> but these ultra-faint dwarf galaxies, we believe were born in the first few billion years. And because they were born then, we believe that by studying them, um, by studying them using our own very advanced telescopes, we can, you know, gain kind of a glimpse or a flashback into what the early universe was like. Wow. I mean, I'm I'm kind of blown away, uh, Hillary, you know, because uh, I was a history major in college, but, so, but, but for me, 500 years was already a long time. Yeah. Fact, that's a longer <laughs> time than what most historians are interested in. You no, know? most yeah. Filipino historians are just interested in the last 150 years, you no, know, since yeah. Rizal's time. It's a, but you're, you're just, you were just talking about billions of years. Yes. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, so it, it, what you're doing and, and thinking about is, is way beyond uh, my imagination. So uh, before I ask you anything about uh, else about science, I, I just want to say you know, that uh, what really impresses me about you uh, is not even the science, because m much of that I don't even understand. Uh, but, you know, but uh, it's despite the advanced nature of your academic interests, you're very engaged with the rest of the world. No, mm -hmm. uh, I find it very uh, admirable and very difficult. No, um, because I would assume that uh, to succeed in something so specialized, it, you would have to be totally focused. Right? Most people are. I mean, to succeed in something, you'd have to you buy the ten thousand hour, uh, you know, theory of excelling in something. You really have to uh, be be totally into it. And and many of you who are into science are extremely focused on very narrow. Uh, research interests, which can be uh, consume, consuming. So, uh, and, and I'm sure you've, you've had this persona being a geek early on, someone who was obviously academically inclined, but yet even with this interest in cosmic fossils, uh, you've been able to maintain an interest in politics, even democracy movements. You've, you know, you've expressed support for the Hong Kong democracy movement in your tweets. Uh, you're interested in free speech. You know, I've read some of your papers. Uh, and you've you've even called for being critical about your field, about science, you know, mm -hmm. being skeptical about the motives of scientists, etc. No, so mm -hmm. uh, so an, an question ko lang is when did you decide that you are going to be this kind of scientist? I started developing some kind of consciousness for um, science in society when I was in Philippine Science High School because a lot of the some scholars of Bisay, as we call Philippine Science High School, mm -hmm. they go on. They go on to UP and then they are they're activists in there. And I started, you know, hearing about what they are fighting for. And I thought that it was, you know, worthwhile, definitely a worthwhile, meaningful thing to do. But for me, myself, my own flashpoint was really early 2020 because that was when COVID was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, I started realizing really how, you know, equity, in particular vaccine equity, or you know, how policies and our understanding of the virus, our understanding of treatments really go together in this very complicated, um, complicated mess. And another thing that also was very formative for me or kind of transformative was, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement as well um, in the U.S. So I was in the U.S. during that time and I kept I, I kept myself very updated and 
as that movement was happening, of course, as a Filipino, I didn't have as much awareness about America's unique history with slavery. But I started reading for reading further and I discovered all of the atrocities that were committed against Black people, sometimes even in the name of science. So some scientists um, were, you know, experimenting on Black people. And that right now is, you know, a terrible, unconscionable crime. And um, so realizing all of these things, na kahit if these things na science was actually involved in these things, these very deep issues in society was really such a um, transformative event for me and mm-hmm. in, it just made so much sense now why would I limit myself to science when you know science in order for science to actually be a tool to help humanity which is what I believe science should be in order for it to be a tool to help humanity scientists should not limit themselves to the just the study itself we need to be more conscious about you know what the greater effects are and one example of that is you know the big movie going on right now which is Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer was deeply troubled by his contributions to the atomic bomb later on and so that's why he was uh, he was a vocal opponent he was a vocal supporter of against nuke he he was very much against nuclear weapons basically mm-hmm. and I I started learning more about scientists who were activists who who you know thought deeply about whether studying bacteria was going to lead into something more or studying genes was going to lead into you know something more um something deeper that we had to think about so mm-hmm. that was my and, own background yeah and uh, you know part of this engagement is being critical of policy policy makers political mm-hmm. leaders the government right? and uh, and uh you you posted uh a message from one of your bashers <laughs> na basically basically stay saying uh, stick to science no masyado yeah. kang bata para mag komentaryo tungkol sa politika kumbaga masyado kang naive and you don't really mm-hmm. know what you're talking about etc and then you pushed back no um mm-hmm. You know, sabi mo, you know, science seeks to discover truths about the universe, however inconvenient mm-hmm. these truths may be. Uh, mm-hmm. To be apolitical as a scientist is to turn against truth. To be apolitical mm-hmm. is to reject the very spirit of science. No? So, yes. uh, basically, I guess, uh, I, I, you know, you're a very young scientist. If If a lot of older scientists, you know, like, like Oppenheimer uh, himself, uh, you know, had done this soul searching before they invented the atomic bomb. Maybe we'd be in a in a better place. And I think that's that's basically what you're saying. Uh, you know, because of because of the kind of uh, damage that science can do. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we we really need to to have more of a conscience. We really need to be more skeptical and critical of of what we do. You know? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And and speaking of which, and I know this is probably uh, been part of your conversations with a lot of people there artificial intelligence okay mm-hmm. um you know there 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 are various camps about this but you know i read this i read this statement from um technology leaders about uh, maybe uh, uh, more than a month ago maybe two months ago about saying that artificial intelligence has the potential to cause the extinction of the human species no um <laughs> yes. uh, technology leadership you no know? and uh, you know better you'll also hear from others who are saying oh those people just want a monopoly <laughs> on mm-hmm. uh, artificial uh, intelligence yeah. they that's why they want it regulated etc et 
Um, and they're actually, you know, it's actually much more beneficial uh, than harmful. But I, mm-hmm. you know, where do you stand on on AI? Because uh, since you know you've you've been you've been thinking about um, uh, you know the ethics of science and technology, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what what is AI really capable of doing? And uh, is is there a way of of stopping its worst worst effects? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, for me, I just want to preface this by saying that I don't study AI and its social implications myself, because so I'm not an expert in it. But I've had some experience reading with, you know, as you said, the, some opinions of some technology leaders about how it could potentially end the world. And for me, I'm not really in that camp. Like, I don't believe it can end the world. And in terms of speaking about, you know, what things can end the world, what things should we focus our attention on, the thing that we should really be focusing on is climate change. Because yun talaga, and we, we're facing some very, you know, unprecedented times, you know, the sea, the sea levels are rising, Antarctic ice is melting, and then maramipang migrations and so on. So this is really the thing that we should be thinking about if we really want to think about the end of the world. And if you want to think about the end of the world, you need to prioritize and but i do agree that ai will have some very positive but also some negative effects and so the positive effect some would say is that it can make things very efficient and some mm. uh, as people already know right now from chat gpt I, I know some employers are imp- using the tool to you know make their processes more efficient you know and some students are also making it to, you know, write their essays and so on. And um, it depends on where people stand on the use of this tool. But we all agree that it can make things more efficient. But the negative thing that could happen from this is that it disrupts jobs. This is the one of the biggest concerns that I've heard. And that is definitely true. That is a negative effect to certain kinds of certain kinds of employee but um it could also lead into a bigger change into what kinds of work will we even employ people to do diva so if we can automate if we can automate certain kinds of jobs that will require um that will you know you especially the more labor intensive jobs a lot some some technology leaders are saying that those could be replaced by AI. So what then are we going to employ people for? What kinds of jobs are we going to give people? And this is this has led to some um conversations about upskilling yourself. So you know, giving yourself skills such that you won't be replaced by AI. And some people are saying, no, you know, you should learn about communication or copywriting or um, coding, but even that is also being taken over by AI. So it's all a very messy thing, and um, I we it remains to be seen where exactly we will go. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I, I'm interested also, and probably a lot of people about your life as a student there. No, uh, MIT is known as being very rigorous, and obviously, even if you're smart, everyone there is smart. No, so. Uh, and, and it's it's quite competitive, but, you know. And and go and going through your your Twitter feed and your social media, no. I mean, uh, it hasn't always been easy for you, apparently, no. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people might think, oh, she's so smart. She's you know, she's done this and that. Life is so easy for her. Pero 
you know, in May 2021, you tweeted, I'm going to say it plain and simple, I'm tired and burned out. No, I mean, it was quite, it sounded worrisome. No, I, I mean, did your parents read that? I mean, if I were, I mean, I'm a parent. If I if I read my college student son uh, tweeting that, I'd be a bit worried. Uh, mm-hmm. um, looking mm-hmm. back, I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously you survived that and, you, you know, you're doing well despite uh, whatever happened in School. But how difficult was school for you? Uh, people might think it's so it was so easy since you you know you graduated with all of these honors. Uh, but but were you were you really uh, burning out at one point? Mm-hmm. For me, school was very difficult, but I I really wanted to work hard and I had very clear goals that I wanted to set for myself. Like oh, I wanted to get into this grad school so I could do this kind of research. So I had very clear goals, but the process to get to that was very difficult. And the reason why I wanted to tweet that was one, I was all tired, but also number two, I wanted to normalize feelings of tiredness or normalize, you know, a sense of failure. Because when people talk to me on, or when they see me talk about my journey in public, they tend to think that, oh, I'm perfect or, you know, everything is easy, as you said. But these journeys are very difficult. And I wanted to, you know, talk about those very openly so that people can recognize all the different dimensions of being, you know, a young student in that time in 2021. And Yun, um, I think it's healthy to acknowledge that, especially for me with a platform. Now, um, I have this, I have this platform to reach many students. And if they see me feeling tired and burnt out, which was a very normal feeling back then during the pandemic. Um, I thought it would make it we could find some kind of common ground in that in that feeling. And but uh, at least we could uh, commiserate <laughs> in the universal experience of being tired, because I'm really not. Um, I'm not out of the ordinary, in my opinion. I'm just one student who has goals and I want to f- make I want to inspire other people to feel like, oh, we're all the same. So that's one of the reasons why I really, um, I try to be more open about failing some exams or not wanting to submit some problem sets. And I I think that's kind of a healthy, healthy thing to do, especially for someone with a platform. Well, obviously that, that attitude has has worked out. Another thing you tweeted, no, Uh, college is just an endless cycle of feeling big brain one moment and then small brain the next. Now, what did you mean by that? Yes. This is back in May. Sorry, this is way back. I don't know if you recall tweeting all these things, but uh, this is May 28, 2021. (laughs) I'm just highlighting Mm -hmm. what what kind of stood out for me, you know, in terms of something that surprised me about you. You know, I mean, you had these mood swings, you know. So what, what, what is feeling big brain one moment and then small brain? Is that just a matter of, feeling smart and feeling dumb or or what kind of like that so um for me i think it's kind of it's normal in the journey of you know acquiring knowledge when at one point when this concept oh you feel so big brain like oh i finally understand it but the next day you find out oh the thing that i just learned actually is in this bigger context of facts and knowledge and the thing I just learned is actually just a small part of that and you start realizing how little you know so you feel small brain which is a very colloquial way of putting it 
And uh, I think it's very natural for people to feel that way. Now, oh, I get this. And actually, I don't get it. I get this. I don't get it. Um, but it also kind of hints at, um, I was also trying to hint at bigger feelings of imposter syndrome, which is another big, another salient feeling that many young people feel. Now, oh, I feel like I'm not good enough. I feel like um, I'm not smart enough to be in this college. And I was definitely feeling that for a lot of MIT and actually until now. And this is a feeling that I want to highlight as well as, you know, being normal, especially for women. Women tend to feel a lot more imposter syndrome than men. This has been a well-studied phenomenon. And as a woman trying to inspire younger women to get into science, I want to tell them that it is part of your journey to feel that way. And it is our work to, you know, to try to minimize, to acknowledge that this feeling is valid, but also try to minimize feelings like this in the future. What things can we change so that we don't, um, so that this imposter syndrome is less pressing? What have you missed about the Philippines? The food. <laughs> so the thing I miss a lot about the Philippines is the food. That's why I've been cooking biko and adobo here in the US. Um, but I also miss the warmth of the Philippines. I've noticed that being in being in the US, friendships don't form as easily. And also when you meet people for the first time, people aren't very open. They have a lot more boundaries about what they're willing to share. Pero in the Philippines, you just go up to someone and then within five minutes, you start talking about What's bothering you? <laughs> Here in the US, I noticed that it takes at least three meet three one-hour meetings or three, you know, food um food meetups to even get to that point. So I think I I really miss that kind of warmth or the feeling of parang close na kayo ka agad, even if you had just met the person. Yeah, but uh Filipinos, that's why Filipinos in the US and other countries, they tend to flock to each other. <laughs> yeah, know, partly for that reason, and and so mm -hmm. don't you? I don't only you hang out actually, with other Filipinos. I didn't find them very early on, so part of that was because of COVID. So I couldn't really socialize with a lot of Filipinos. And the next thing was that there weren't many Filipinos um, coming from the Philippines in MIT. So there were you know only a handful of us, less than ten um, Filipinos in MIT. There were more Philams, of course. So I only really started finding a Filipino community here after um, Lenny Robredo came to Harvard. And then so many of us went there and then we all met each other. And that was where I started finding a network of you know, Filipino scholars and academics. And it, it was pretty recent. So I didn't find my community early on. So, you know, you've, You've uh, you're from Leyte, no? Uh, a part of Leyte that was um, really hit hard by uh, Typhoon Yolanda, you know, international name mm -hmm. of course is Haiyan, no? And um, you've said that um, uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan uh, or or Yolanda and uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, were cases where better science communication could have saved thousands of lives. No? Mm -hmm. uh, paano? Paano? I mean, for example, so, okay, let's start with Haiyan. Okay. Um, 
I can understand yung sa COVID, no? Uh, pero how could science communication have saved more lives uh, mm-hmm. uh, during Typhoon uh, Yolanda? I suppose the science communication before the typhoon hit, diba? Yes. Or, or what were you talking about when you said that science communication could have saved people from being killed by Typhoon yes. Yolanda? Well, one thing was my own experience. So my own experience was that I personally didn't even know what a storm surge was, which is, um, which is, which means that there was really not enough education on what storm surges were and what their what risks they carried. And this was not true just for me. This was true for many other people, and in the region and. As a result, people didn't appreciate what kind of risks they carried, how bad it could have been. How old were you then? I was 14. I was 14. But you were already interested in science. Yes. So someone like you, who's already a future MIT student, uh, (laughs) even someone like you didn't know what a storm surge was. Ano pa kaya yung ordinaryong tao? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even ordinary people who, you know, who yung mga mga they probably know more about storm surges than I do. Of course, they they would know. But um, another thing that was actually studied as well, um, Professor Raul Lejano in NYU he he studied this on you know he conducted several interviews on what how exactly communication was done during um before Haiyan and he found out that it was really not just the information that was transmitted was inadequate the information transmission system was also inadequate so mm. aside from not telling aside from not being good at telling us what a storm surge was how mm the storm surge information was delivered to people and communities was not very, very good. So one key finding in that research was that when Pag-asa does um, weather bulletins, it does it in a very hierarchical way. So mula sa, you know, your central office in NCR, they transmit this information to the regional level, to the town, to the city level, and even um, the barangay level during these transmission um, to the different um, jurisdictions, the message doesn't change, and that's unfortunate because the context in which this message should be put should change. So, yung message from NCR and the message from this um, from this seaside sitio or barangay should be different because this seaside sitio should. Um, the message to them should be contextualized in what they should expect in their own town. So what should we expect in terms of wind? What should we expect in terms of um, sea level rise? Or how how do our infra um, how how does our architecture or infrastructure, how could how does it how will this storm interact with our infrastructure specifically? Like kung kubo, kubo yung meron dito or kung yung malalaking bahay how would that um how would the storm look like in these different contexts and that was one of the key things that they found that he, because the context of the message didn't change and because the you know officials in charge of transmitting these weather bulletins didn't feel um didn't feel like they could add context because yung message dapat yun lang talaga no more no less 
And this kind of um, strict and hierarchical information, um, information transmission uh, chain made it very hard for the local communities to really understand what the storm surge meant. And one interesting thing also was that you saw one of the key key Haiyan weather bulletins. Yung storm surge is parang isa lang parang footnote lang siya at that time, and that was, and that's very surprising given how the storm surge was actually the most damaging part of the storm. So mm-hmm. it really required contextualizing at all the different levels, and I think if that happened, that could have also saved more lives. And then, I mean, looking back now, what would have been the best ways of? I mean, kunyari, the mess, the someone got the message right. How should it have been communicated? I mean, how? I mean, what? Like, so, sabi mo, mga fishermen, mga ordinaryong tao, should it have been through like radio or online? You're mostly an online person, no? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're on YouTube, etc. No, but mm-hmm. would that have been? Should that have been the chosen medium for most of these? For most of this messaging, it's all about context. So there are, um, for the young people, if you want to reach them, then of course reach them through social media and online. But there are also some contexts, like for example, in certain barangays, na their information is transmitted orally. Then definitely do that orally, um, and that's why importante talaga na yung message is transmitted in a very contextualized way. Na dapat it's specific to the kinds of people that you're trying to reach because you you know you can't reach um smaller barangays where there's not very good english literacy you can't reach mm-hmm. them with the preset um weather bulletin from pagasana written in english so you have to translate that into the local vernacular but not only translate it into the local vernacular tell them what it really means like what should they see in the storm what should they expect in very real and concrete terms so hindi hindi enough na it translate lang to the local vernacular if you really want to save lives with communication i'm going to ask you now about um uh advice uh that you would give to students who are thinking now you know how to be like you no i'm smart i'm good in science you know how do i get to mit how do i get to you know a prestigious uh school overseas no because uh you've said Previously, no. Sabi mo, uh, I sincerely believe every single Pisay student or student from Philippine Science uh, High School can get into a school abroad, no doubt. No, but almost no one can afford to pay at least fifty-five thousand dollars a year. Is that tuition lang, or does that include like board and lodging and all the all in a bayon or tuition lang yun? It depends. Uh, it depends on which school. For of MIT, course. that's only tuition, but for some schools, it includes everything. So sa MIT $55,000 a year tuition lang. Mm-hmm. So the total hindi pa yung, cost hindi pa yung pagkain mo and all of that mm-hmm. airfare to get there etc no. So uh okay so I guess uh uh reading that parang sabi mo almost no one can afford to pay at least $55,000 a year. So parang so a precise student who's talented thinking that he can get into a school abroad and you yourself say there's no doubt that kaya niya but he cannot afford it. Pero Ikaw, sabi mo nga kanina na, you know, you 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 didn't come from a well-off community. You went to a public mm-hmm. school. You went to a public high school. Well, you made it to MIT. I mean, that required. Mm-hmm. So, yun nga. So, 
why 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 close the door on others when you yourself made it diba so oh no mm-hmm. uh, uh, nga, so uh, there must have been a way right um yeah. to be able to well, do it i'd like to clarify that but um because that was the that tweet was in the context of this one Pisay student who mm. applied to uh, a school in the US and then he got in, pero hindi siya nakakuha ng financial aid. And okay. the problem with that was um, they, he also had to fundraise for the initial deposit to get into the university. Mm. And yung fundraising niya, it went viral. And I really commend him for the efforts to do all that fundraising. And It was just very unfortunate na um at, I think at the end of it all hindi siya natuloy kasi I think his visa got denied. Um I need to Really? Yeah, I, mean, I need nakapasok to nakapasok ka sa isang prestigious school and you know uh, you're, you're yeah. such a great you know from the bootstraps kind of story and then i-deny ka ng US government. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty yeah. medyo masaklap 'yon, huh? It actually it's a very unfortunate story that happens to many students and So that was my context, and that's why I was talking about Pisay students specifically. Now, I believe Pisay students, um, given how talented they are, could get into a U.S. university. But I, I didn't mean to say that I was closing the door on these other talented students. I just wanted to give people, you know, some kind of a reality check that, yes, getting into these schools is amazing, but it's unfortunate that students can't pursue these amazing opportunities just because of how expensive they are. So I wanted to highlight more of okay. the the hardships of getting of money to get to your dreams. And so I was I was commenting on that. And so that was one side of the story, but there's also other kinds of students who are who've been very successful in getting financial aid. And so that's why when people want to go to school abroad, I encourage them to find schools that give financial aid to international students. Because there are certain schools that give a lot of financial aid to international students. So for example, you know, the big schools, Harvard, MIT, Princeton, Yale, Amherst College, they're all very good schools. And if you get in, um, even if, Um, if as long as you get in, regardless of your financial need or whatnot, they will um, they will give you 100 as much as the money that you need to get in there. But there's also other schools that give merit based financial aid. So they they ask you to write a letter or they ask you to submit a resume in order to get a scholarship. And that's a different mm-hmm. kind of financial aid. Mm-hmm. And so to all the students who aspire for Um, to aspire to go to schools abroad or in the U.S., prioritize your financial situation, um, thinking about your financial situation first. And that doesn't mean that there aren't schools that will give you financial aid. There are. You just have to look for them. And um, so that's why it's important. Because a, a lot of students get very excited by the idea of going to school abroad. But it's... It, It sucks because they get very mm-hmm. excited about the dream that they forget about the real costs, the real financial costs of going there. So I recommend thinking about the money <laughs> and the dream at the same time. Yes. And, and but, yeah. but I also wanted to add that going to school abroad isn't the only good dream out there, you know, because we as a parang, there has been so much hype about 
all these young Filipino students getting into schools abroad. And yes, of course, we should celebrate them. Um, this is a great achievement and it requires great courage to even apply in the first place. But I want to add that there are also amazing things to do in the Philippines. Now, the only great things to do aren't just outside the Philippines. There are amazing, you can be successful and amazing if you stay in the Philippines as well. Well, and then speaking of which, now you've spoken about returning to the Philippines. Uh, you've, you've said uh, that Uh, you know, you plan to take home to the Philippines, whatever you learn and, you know, use it for, you know, the, for, for the country. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but you, you said this, you might have said this like a couple of years ago, no? So yeah. now that you've graduated from MIT and you're, you're in this, you're going to be in this doctoral program studying something really complex and specialized uh, at the University of Chicago. Do you still feel the same way uh, oh, yeah. about returning to the Philippines? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I still feel the same way. The only thing that's very uncertain for me is how exactly I will do that. I have, I feel a very strong sense of obligation because that's really where, you know, that's the country where I'm from. That's the community that I know. And I really feel that I personally can make a big impact there if I just bring all of the things that I've learned here. But the only thing So I'm fairly certain about going to the Philippines. The only uncertainty is how and when I will do that. How exactly, um, what job will I take to do this? Or when exactly in my career will I do that? But given my strong sense of obligation to um, to the Philippines, I know na babalik talaga. <laughs> You've had these four years of interacting with people at MIT. Now you're going to have another several years at the University of Chicago. And I can imagine... Uh, pag-uwi mo, I mean, sinong kausap mo no? about all mm-hmm. of these exactly. know, complex, complex things. No? Uh, yeah, but that's the good thing about having all of these things like Zoom because, you know, people, um, these networks of, um, these ne- networks of scientists can extend everywhere in the world now and that's a very democratizing factor. Okay. Um, pero yun nga po, um, There really isn't that much of a community, especially in astrophysics, because there you need facilities um, to have to do astrophysics, and that def- that definitely is parang a weak spot in in the Philippines. But my focus, but who, when are we going to start? You know, building that community. So if wala kong kausap na, if wala kong in the near future, then who should start? making that community of people. And I feel like I want to be part of that um, group of people who want to build that community, you know, mentoring the younger students, na, um, getting them interested in astronomy and making um, a scholarly community in the Philippines. And there's already been very good work done right now in starting that community, particularly in UP Diliman, the National Institute of Physics. So see Dr. Reina Reyes, si Dr. Ian Vega, They're both doing, they both have astronomy, um, astrophysics-related backgrounds, and they return to the Philippines, and they're mentoring their own students, and they're producing, um, given the short time that their research groups have been around, they've made um, so many contributions now. And I think it's very amazing to see that in real time. And in the future, um, I want to, you know, help do that kind of thing. But I'm not sure exactly how I will do that. <laughs> But it, it is happening, um, building that scholarly community. 
this has been very uplifting, uh, Hillary. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so happy to hear that. And um, it's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we're all proud of you, uh, Hillary, and we're looking forward to what you'll become and contribute to the world and not just to our country. Mabuhay ka. Uh, Hillary oh, Diane Andales, new MIT graduate uh, who has graduated with uh, many honors and now incoming PhD student in astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago. Maraming maraming salamat for this interview, Hillary. Maraming salamat po. Hi, I'm Howie Severino. Check out the Howie Severino Podcast, an original for GMA News and Public Affairs. New episodes will stream every Thursday. Listen for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms.